0: Well, faith is an important subject for Christians, is it not? Particularly faith in Christ. It's our centerpiece, it's who we are as people. We know the teaching of God's word, of the priority of faith, that without faith it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. We know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. For by it, men of old gained approval. We know the example of Abraham, that he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we know that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. These are the promises of God's word for us regarding faith, its centrality, its place, and all that it gives for us in reuniting us to God. But though these things are on the pages of Scripture, often in our lives, what's written in the text and what we feel in our hearts can seem to be miles and miles apart. And for varying reasons, perhaps you've been hit recently with a series of unfortunate circumstances that have just threatened your soul. Perhaps you've just been walking with Christ so long that what was once a rich and vibrant faith now feels mundane and stale or part of the memory banks of things you know and no longer need to continue growing in. Friends, I'm so glad that Christ is described as a potter who forms clay because sometimes our faith feels just like clay. It might look like it has the potential to be a strong statue. At other times it feels like it's smashed and being stretched and spread and completely reworked all at the same time by the One who loved us and called us and has given His promises to us through His Word. Friends, where is your faith this morning? Where is your confidence in Christ? Are you seeing its significance and profundity for your life? Is it the centerpiece of who you are and what you're doing and where your joy is? Or do you find yourself distracted, removed from the promises of God's Word, and without certainty, in the midst of this day regarding your calling and your place in Christ. Friends, I have very good news for you if you're in that place or anywhere near that place, that Christ is the kind of person that is always at work desiring to build our faith. I mean, the scriptures are witness to us that God is actively concerned about building our faith. It's why they exist, the incarnation, the work of Christ, everything that is written and recorded here is meant to build and produce in us a profound and powerful confidence in the truth of who God is, of what He has called us to do, of how He's trying to form us, how deeply He loves us, and how much He desires to be glorified in us today. See, that's why I love this passage. It's why I'm so great for Mark and the Gospel writers that they would leave this text for us that here in the passage we might taste and see how Christ and how the Spirit through providence and circumstance goes about the work of building our faith. You see, he starts by forming in us a simple yet sincere faith that wants to come to him openly and learn who he is from his own mouth through his word. It moves forward in directing us to engage others who are in need of the ministry of Christ to also come and move to Him. It hears, He hears the doubts of our own souls and the reservations that we have as we come to Him trying to reconcile the varying truths of our minds. And friends, so also it reminds us and calls us to behold the beautiful glory of how He's working in us even amidst the awkward circumstances in which he's making his glory known. Friends, let's receive God's word today and hear through it how he is attempting to build and nurture all of our faith in him this morning. Well, our passage begins again in Capernaum. We've been there before in our text and in our passage. Capernaum was an early centerpiece of Christ's ministry. And it's reported that after he's been home some days that he's there again. Word's gotten out that Christ is back in town. We remember from Mark chapter 1 that Christ has been a little overwhelmed in his public ministry. People are bringing people after people after people, and he went and recently had healed a man who was a leper, and he sternly charged him that he tell no one what he had done for him. Well, the leper can't help it because he who was once unclean has now been made clean, and he tells everybody that he knows about what Christ did, and further threatening Christ's own anonymity in his sphere and time and place and so Christ has been able to have a few days of privacy at home we don't know if this is his actual home we don't think he owns property given other reports in the New Testament but it's the place where he's staying and he's been there for some time. But word has gotten out in the small town of Capernaum that Christ is there, and people are coming to him one by one so much that very quickly this day in which Mark is recording these events, that the house where he is staying can no longer contain the visitors and the guests that are coming to hear Christ. These homes weren't large in Capernaum. In fact, they were quite small, so it wouldn't have taken a large crowd to accomplish this feat of filling up this small home uh, with extra bodies. And even the door itself is not able to contain. People are spilling out into the streets trying to be within earshot or eyeshot of what it is that Christ is saying. It's interesting here in these first two verses that we see an initial taste and glimpse of what faith-building activity looks like as Christ and as the Holy Spirit work with us providentially to draw us near Him. Sincere faith, simple faith, starts with the desire to hear Christ and the teaching of His Word. And that's exactly what Christ is doing here in the passage. As those come, we don't know why they're coming, presumably to be healed given His public ministry activities, but them coming to be healed, He actually uses this occasion to tell them who He is, what He's about, and what His purposes are in the world. See, and they're doing it not just alone, but also they're hearing the questions and comments and observations that others have as they're receiving the teaching of God's Word, and they're doing it also in community. See, this passage reminds us, friends, that we need to be learners and hearers of God's Word, but not just individual learners and hearers of God's Word. We also need to do it in community which is why I'm glad to see you here today, that here collectively we are trying to hear and receive the promises of God's Word through His Word. But also let me encourage you, friends, one day of growth in Christ is not sufficient to continue to produce a lifelong steadfast faith. Let me encourage you, connect in other ways here at Redeemer, through our small group ministries, through our School of Discipleship ministries. Come back tonight, gather with believers, to hear and receive the teaching of God's word and be refreshed in the truths of the promises that he has given to us from his own mouth. While as interesting and as impressive as that initial steps are and those initial building blocks of faith are in the lives of those who are there, there's a greater faith that Christ sees that impresses him. And that's with those unnamed they, the unnamed they come, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. I don't know what it's like to be paralyzed. I've been able to walk my whole life. I may have had moments when I've been sick and not been able to move around, but I can't imagine the emotional toll that paralysis would have on your life, being wholly dependent on other people. We don't know if this man was paralyzed from birth or if he caught a disease or he was involved in an accident that damaged his spinal cord. But for whatever reason, he cannot walk. And now, in a day and age when there is no medical advancement that can solve his problem or cure him, he has been put in a position providentially and circumstantially where he is close enough to Christ that those who know him and love him can physically take him to Christ this day. There's something admirable here about the paralytics friends, about the four men that bring him with them that They didn't let their circumstances or their schedules or any excuses prevent them from taking their friend whose only um, solution to his crippling, debilitating disease was Christ himself. They cast off whatever things they could have been doing that day. They determined to gather their friend. And whatever time it takes to get from the place of his residence to Christ, they put in the effort and the work to get their friend to Christ. And if that was all they were doing, that would be oppressive enough, but also (laughs) if they're willing to violate what I'm pretty sure are two universal social norms. The first is you don't interrupt a nationally acclaimed teacher when he's giving a lecture in front of those who are inquiring of him. The second is you don't break down someone's roof in the middle of them hosting company without asking their explicit permission. (laughs) And can you imagine being in that circumstance? You've been interested in hearing what Christ is saying. You're in the room. You're pretty oblivious to what's going on outside because we know that Christ is a captivating teacher. And all of a sudden you hear some Footsteps go up their stairwell to the side, and you hear some rumbling upstairs, and you're kind of looking and trying not to be distracted, focusing, not focusing, and all of a sudden you hear them digging out the roof. You see the roofs were constructed of crossbeams and another layer of sticks, and then there was some mud and some thatch, and so it wasn't just like, you know, you're moving a cover off. There was actual deconstruction work that needed to be done to unroof the roof to break this down. And in the midst of these circumstances, Jesus is teaching, and by all accounts, he doesn't seem to be affected until the roof opens up, the hole is wide enough for the bed to be come down, presumably there are ropes suspending the corners, allowing the men to gurney-style let their friend down, and here right in the middle of whatever point Jesus is in his teaching, boom, there's a man on a bed sitting right in their midst. I mean, the awkwardness of this circumstance is so ironic as we consider this situation. But how does Christ respond? He doesn't, you know, make a joke or wisecrack something. He is actually moved and impressed, not just by this man's faith, but also by the faith of his friends as well. And he does for him something that we would initially pause at, but he says to him, Son, young man who I care about, your sins are forgiven. I mean, if we were sitting there, we'd be like, Jesus, that's nice, but this man's paralyzed. He can't walk, and you can heal him. Why are you forgiving his sins? You see, Jesus is trying to reorient the values and the desires of those around him, including the paralytic in front of him, Who has longed to be helped or to be healed many, many days of his life. And that reversal of values actually places the forgiveness of sins and restoration to God above all other earthly healing and physical healing that he could have done for him. He's so impressed that he blesses him by absolving him of every sin that he had thus committed in life. See it reorients our values as well in thinking about how we pray. We pray often for our earthly needs, and we're supposed to pray for our earthly needs, for our daily bread. But so also, friends, we're called to be people who are in tune with our souls. The fundamental problem of the world isn't just the physical issues. It's actually far deeper than that. It's the spiritual realities that we are sinners who live among an unclean people. We are unclean people among unclean people, And we need restored and forgiven by God before we can ever possibly be restored to one another or see restoration in this world. Well, Christ forgives the man of his sins, and then we see another group emerge within our passage, and that's the skeptics. There's a naysayer in every crowd, right? Here there's a couple of naysayers in the crowd. They've heard Jesus. They've been interested in what he has to say. But when he absolves this man of his sins, in their hearts, given their scholastic knowledge, their competence, their understanding of God's word, recognizing their own responsibility to uh, promote good and sound teaching of God's people, they think Jesus is committing blasphemy. Well, it's intriguing here that they would absolutely be true, and look at their words— They say in their own hearts and in their own minds, they say, uh, why does this man speak like this? You see, they can't possibly fathom in their hearts and minds that the one who's standing before them isn't merely a man, but he's very God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who... Created all things, who summoned Israel into existence, who gave them the law and the prophets, and now is actually fulfilling the law and the prophets in himself in the second person of his son, Jesus Christ. And he's the one standing before them. You know, for every skeptic, there's some obstacle in their mind. And that might be from their experience, from the tradition in which they grew up in. It might be from their own reasoning abilities. It also might be out of simple desire that. Perhaps they really don't want to hear Christ. Hear all of these things intersect, and they can't trust in their own heart what Christ is doing despite the absolute goodness of what he's trying to do for this man. Well Jesus, ever sensitive to the skeptic and to the critic, he responds. And it's interesting how he does so. There's the narrative of what's happening, but then there's also the propositions that he's doing. He's one action by one action revealing to him that he's more than simply this man speaking to him to them, but that he also might be something more. You see, his question is meant to spark and summon potential faith in them if they're willing to hear what he has to say and respond accordingly. He begins firstly by demonstrating supernatural knowledge of the condition of their own heart. You see the the passage here in 2 verses 8 says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus thus questioned within themselves, said to them. See, this isn't just an awareness of social dynamics and what the scribes are going to think. Christ knows the minds of those who he encounters in his ministry. He has supernatural knowledge of the thoughts and convictions in their own heart. In his responding and questioning, he's showing to them that he is more than a mere man, but like God, has knowledge of the thoughts and intentions of those who are around him. He moves further into his uh, proposition by proposing a question to them. He says, "Which "...which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven," Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. The answer is meant to be completely obvious here. It's obviously easier to simply say, hey, your sins are forgiven there's no way naturally to actually prove that that happened, right? You need God to somehow verify that. So unless, you know, the heavens would open up through the hole in the roof and a light would peer down upon the man, there's no way that Jesus himself could actually prove that this man's man's sins were actually forgiven. But, by contrast, to say to a man, rise, get up, and walk... You would immediately have to prove so by this man actually demonstrating so. And so in Jesus' question, he's trying to provide a common ground between he and the skeptic, showing that, hey, it's more difficult to do this. Now, having positioned this proposition, let's let me show you that I can actually do this and therefore also accomplish the forgiveness of sins. And that's precisely what he does. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then, in the midst of the crowd, the man gets up, he takes his bed, and he does just that. You see, Jesus is concerned with the question of the skeptic. He knows their hearts. He's proving himself to be God, and he's proving his ability through the miraculous work in ministry that he's accomplishing. What's left for the skeptic to do? Well, Are you going to believe the arguments that lead to the conclusion? Are you going to take that step from that second premise to the conclusion? Or are you going to continue in a state of doubt and uncertainty? Well, there's a third thing here in our passage that we see Christ doing. He responds by building a sincere faith. He responds here, addressing the concerns of a skeptic's faith. And he's also working in the midst of all circumstances To build in those who are around him a glorifying faith. See, when we get to verse 12, none of the dynamics from the previous verses have actually changed at this point. They're still in a crowded room. There's a hole in the ceiling. There's been now an additional person in his bed, mind you, that have gone into creating a further compact and compressed environment here in the small home in which these things are transpiring. And now, what is happening? I mean, the irony here is hilarious. This man gets up, he takes his bed, and one by one starts. To, oh, excuse me, pardon me. Hey, I got to get. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm. So, excuse me. Par, yeah. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Taking the bed and walking out. I mean, it's comedic. He's touching them. They're, the crowds are parting, and the man who couldn't get in had to get into the roof is now walking out the front door with his mat fully in hand. See, there's something about humor, physical touch, and the awkwardness of living with one another, experiencing the work of Christ in community that is meant to build and nurture our faith. See, we're not just called to be one-day Christians gathered together for a few hours on a Sunday morning. We're called to live life together, to touch one another, to hear our own insecurities, uncertainties, and doubt, to come alongside one another and pick one another up, in the midst of the challenges of life and to experience in our own lives how God is at work, taking one moment of sorrow and difficulties that seem like there's no possible solution to our anxieties and sometimes in a moment's notice dramatically change our circumstances. And that blessing isn't just for us like the paralytic, but it's for the whole community to wonder in awe at who God is and what He's doing in our midst. Friends, that's the kind of community that we're trying to build here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. A context where we know one another, where we overcome the circumstances of life, where we experience the challenges of life together, but collectively we come to say, oh Lord, we have not seen anything like this. A community that loves Christ, that is open with one another, that is growing together, and is moving forward in sincerity to the gospel. Friends, if you are looking for Christ to nurture your faith, I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I'm so glad we've had a chance to talk this morning. And I hope that as you depart from here, you'll remember these three concluding truths. Christ forgives sins. You're always just a prayer away from being absolved of your sins. Secondly, he's always ready to answer the skeptic's doubt. If that's your doubts, he's always ready to listen, hear, and through his word, address your concerns. Thirdly, he's always working to build the faith of those he's called. And if he's called you friends, he will most certainly equip you and build you and strengthen your faith for his glory. Let's pray. Almighty God and King, we thank you for the teaching of your word. We thank you for its preservation And Lord, also we thank you that you are alive, still speaking it through the work of your spirit in our midst. Continue to form and massage these truths in our lives this day and continue to strengthen us as a people of your own possession. We are yours, O Lord, so nurture our souls. In your son's holy and precious name we pray, amen.